<laughs> Let me hear. Say it one more time. You're listening to Failure. Failure. Failure 101. Failure. Failure. Wait. Fail your. Fail your. Failure. 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 I can't say that word. Right. You're listening to Paul Elmore. Perfect. This week, let's talk about grief. Would that be okay? When things happen, <clears throat> when mistakes happen, when failures happen, when people let us down, sometimes there is nothing that can be done. There's no way to fix it. There's no way to solve it. There's no way to make it better. And when that's the case, we have got to learn how to move through the grieving process so that we can heal. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. Before we jump in, let's um, do a few more minutes of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, you are a kind God, and you meet us where we are at. It's an honor to be known by you. We are humbled that you would look into our lives and know us so deeply and personally and intimately. Thank you that you know the burdens that we carry, the questions that we have, the struggles that we continue to hold. I would ask and I would pray, Father, that as we move through tonight, that your comfort will be felt for each person here and that we will know that you are a loving God and in your name, amen. During the first day of an introductory speech class, the teacher was going around the room having the students introduce themselves. Each student was to respond to the question, what do I like about myself and what don't I like about myself? Nearly hiding at the back of the room was Dorothy. Her long red hair hung down around her face, almost obscuring it from view. When it was Dorothy's turn to introduce herself, there was only silence in the room. Thinking perhaps she had not heard the question, the teacher moved his chair over near hers and gently repeated the question. Again, there was only silence. Finally, with a deep sigh, Dorothy sat up in her chair, pulled back her hair, and in the process revealed her face. Covering nearly all of one side of her face was a large, irregularly shaped birthmark, nearly as red as her hair. That, she said, should show you what I don't like about myself. Moved with compassion, this godly professor leaned over, gave her a hug, and then he kissed her on her cheek where the birthmark was and said, that's okay. God and I still think you're beautiful. Dorothy cried uncontrollably for almost 20 minutes. Soon other students had gathered around her and were offering their comfort as well. When she finally could talk, as she dabbed the tears from her eyes, she said to the professor, I've wanted so much for someone to hug me and say what you said. Why couldn't my parents do that? My mother won't even touch my face. When we have 
deep pain that we carry, when we have things that we cannot change, that cannot be undone, God has granted us a remarkable gift called the grieving process. It's a way to move through our loss or the new reality that we face and somehow learn how to live differently. Tonight I want to spend a little bit of time learning how to move through that process in a healthy manner, in a way that is um, both appropriate and restorative, whether it's yourself who's having to move through that grieving process because of something that's been lost, or whether you're helping someone else move through that grieving process. Now, to be clear, we can grieve things beyond just, let's say, the loss of a human life. We can grieve the loss of innocence. We can grieve the loss of an experience or an opportunity. We can grieve the loss of a job. We can grieve the loss of lots and lots of things. Many times when the failures and the mistakes surround us in our lives, it costs us things that we can't get back. Here's how to move through some of that. That's where we're going tonight. Let's talk about grieving. A little caveat before we jump in. We're going to look at a rough model, kind of the main components of the grieving process, but I want you to hear very, very clearly, this is not a recipe. You don't have to go through these either in this order or even in this way. Grief is messy and we are all unique in the burdens that we carry and the pain that we have. And so expecting someone to move through it in a prescribed way might be unrealistic. So I want you just to hear that. Um, what is true is that in a lot of the grieving scenarios that we might see or we might look at, many of these things are present so that when they do show up, they might not be a surprise to us anymore. Again, whether that's moving through our own process or moving through the process with somebody else. Does that make sense? All right. Here's my definition, my personal definition of um, grief. Really, 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 really wanting something that you'll never be able to have. I know it's probably not a clinical definition, might not be one that you've heard before, but think about it. If my wife were to pass away, do you think that I would just really, 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 really want her back? You think that I would just, it's just something I want. Or the lost job opportunity, or the lost financial situation. It's just something that you wish didn't happen. I really, 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 really want this. That's, that's what grief is, is when you find yourself in that moment and you just, you've lost something. I, I mentioned it last week when my son takes out the trash, he doesn't come in crying, remember? Because of the trash, there's nothing of value. We grieve over things that are important to us, that have value. And the grieving process is a way to honor that. The phrase, crying doesn't fix anything, is actually true. Tears are not designed to fix 
anything. There are some cultures that actually have these little tiny bottles and you can actually store up your tears, put little stoppers in it, put it on the mantle to remember that situation, to remember the lament, to remember what has been lost. Tears are a way of honoring what has been lost. It's an outward display of saying, this is valuable to me and I hurt because it is missing. Which is always kind of odd because many times people have a hard time expressing tears, don't they? So it's hard to just weep or to be sad in front of other people because it makes us feel what? Vulnerable. Vulnerable and weak. Those are the two big words. And yet, if we can understand tears as something of honor, isn't that an amazing experience to move through, especially with people, instead of by yourself? Consider that the next time you get that lump in your throat or that tightness in your chest when something's happening. And what would it feel like to release that, to let that go? What is the purpose of grief? To express a confirm that what was lost was valuable. We don't mourn and grieve over dispensable things. We just talked about that. The purpose of grief is to allow time to get used to a whole new way of life. If my wife were to pass away again, life's going to be very different. And it's hard to go from one moment of, I'm used to her, I'm used to her presence, I'm used to her help, I'm used to her companionship, I'm used to her love, I'm used to just her in my life. And then she passes away, the very next day, would it be reasonable to expect me to be able to function at the same level or caliber as she's not there and I have to adjust. It's just unrealistic. Grief is the process of, of moving through and becoming a whole new person. You're, you become a, um, life is never the same. You hear that phrase a lot, especially around kind of catastrophes and, and people being lost. And again, I want you to remember that this is not just for death, shall we say, it's for lost innocence or lost opportunity or that mistake, that wrong that someone has, has done towards you. Time does not heal, sorry. Rather, it is how we use our time to grieve that helps us heal. This often takes longer than people around us are comfortable with. We're going to come back to that phrase over and over. The expectations, the pressure we feel from some people to just get over it, to move on, to get better. When you've lost a marriage, to divorce. That's important. And you might not get over that quickly. 2007. Do you guys remember the Virginia Tech massacre? The student who walked in and actually over a two-hour period in two different locations killed 31 people. Here's a news article and a response to the news article. Within hours of the massacre of more than 30 people at Virginia Tech University, the president of the university issued his first statement on the evil that had just engulfed the camp college campus and concluded with this. We are making plans for a convocation tomorrow at noon in Cassell Coliseum for the university to come together to begin the healing process from this terrible tragedy. Other university officials also spoke about beginning the healing process and about 
bringing in counselors to help students heal. Now, no problem with that, trying to begin the healing process. It's a good and admirable attempt and desire. Um, here's one response that someone wrote in. I believe that this early healing talk is both foolish and immoral. It is foolish because one does not speak about healing the same day or week or perhaps even month that one is traumatized, especially by evil. One must be allowed time for anger and grief to speak of healing and closure before one goes through those other emotions is to speak not of healing, but of suppression. Very wise. Not to allow people time to experience their natural and noble instincts to feel rage and grief actually deprives them of their ability to heal in the long run. After all, if there is no rage and grief, what is there to heal from? It is not good for people to feign normalcy immediately after the loss of a loved one. People who have not been allowed or not allowed themselves time to grieve suffer later on. Any child who loses a parent and is protected from grief by a well-intentioned parent who tries to act normal right after the other parent's death is likely to pay a steep psychological price. Indeed, there is a strange belief among the intellectual elites, even among psychiatrists and mental health professionals, that feeling anguish and grief are wrong and must be avoided at all cost. Or, if you must feel them, then you must be instantly transformed into a focus on this thing called healing. These well-meant but ultimately invalidating pressures to begin the healing process actually hinder the natural expression of normal grief, which can only come about after painful reflection and the resolution of a variety of conflicting emotions, including anger, sadness, hopelessness, outrage, and regret. Appropriate mourning also requires coming to terms with the nature and the manner of the loss, a quest for justice on behalf of the victim when appropriate, and even the painful reliving and re-experiencing of what happened until it can be completely processed and internally metabolized. It hurts and hurts and hurts, but that is how we grow. The major ingredient of a normal grieving process is time. It cannot nor should it be expected to be resolved or healed in a day or a few days or even a month or two. For the families of those who died, it may take years and years. Our bodies physiologically process through the loss and the hurt and the anger. And I like the phrase in there, the conflicting emotions, because you can both be sad or happy or angry or confused or lost or devastated all at the same time, which doesn't always make sense, but is absolutely true. The ability, the freedom to process through our stuff um, keeps us sane. There was a story, don't know how many of you might remember it, back in the um, 70s, I think it was around 76, where a school bus full of children were kidnapped. Who kidnaps a school bus full of children except some very, very evil people? And not only did they just kidnap them, they drove them to a rock quarry where they had built an underground bunker, shall we say, and they moved all the children into there, closed the doors, and buried it under tons of rock. Evil people. They didn't touch them. They didn't hurt them. They didn't molest them. They didn't do anything. 
They just buried them alive. 30 kids or so. While in this container underground, two boys were leaning against one of the supports and it wiggled, it moved. And so after working it, they kicked it out of the way and some rocks came in and they found an access hole. And these two boys were able to crawl out and run for safety and that's what saved all of the kids. They led them back to where they were. Rescuers dig them out and when they open the doors and they, they make, you know, make it possible for them to leave, none of them moved. They were so paralyzed with fear, they were stuck in that moment that they had to go in and carry them out. And at the time, early 70s, when we didn't understand trauma very well, all of the leading experts were saying they weren't hurt, they weren't injured, they weren't beaten or, or damaged in, physically in any way, they'll be fine. And out of all 30, 28 of them had significant, debilitating, psychological, adaptive problems. They just couldn't adjust afterwards. Know which two didn't? The two that dug their way out. Because they had a chance to be, they were as scared as everyone else. They were terrified as, as much as anyone else. But they had a chance to move through the process and realize even when I am scared, I can free myself. And they actually worked out all that energy that that was necessary, that our bodies are designed to move through to keep us safe, to move us through a process. And they still had issues, but they were on a scale, you know, they were way below everybody else. We need to process through our stuff physiologically. That means that knot in your stomach, that means that depression, that means that fist-shaking anger. That means that rage. That means that isolation. That means that running down the street in the middle of the night. That means what? However we need to move through that. Because sometimes that's what it takes to deal for us to start to move through this grieving process. It's hard to see with the lights on, but that's several thousand candlelights um, after the Virginia Tech massacre. People gathered, people wept. People just spent time near each other. It is necessary, it is important to be connected. Another fascinating story of um, I wish I had the details because I wasn't actually planning on using this story, but it just reminded me right now. Um, I want to say some South Africa stuff. I might be wrong here, so don't quote me. Um, but you have hundreds of thousands of people who have been hurt, who have been abused, and they just gathered together. And the leaders of this, of this organization all they did was help them move, dance, sing, spend time physiologically processing through that. It was a group, a large group kind of trauma session. And as they moved and as they wept and as they howled and as they danced and as they moved and as they rejoiced and they moved through that, they were starting to move through that process of healing their own internal wounds. It's a good story. I'm going to have to come up with the details of it because I wish I 
knew it better. The grief cycle. Again, this is not formulaic, um, but these are things that you will often see when someone has been hurt. You have the shock stage, which is this initial paralysis at hearing the bad news. Um, the way I kind of remember this, um, and what's often kind of shown in um, TV or movie scenarios, is the mom and dad sitting home at night. It's about 11.30. The knock comes on the door. And who's standing at the front door? The police officer with his hat in his hand. And he says, I, I need to deliver some bad news. Your daughter was in a car accident. And at that moment, you start to see this process move through because the mom standing at the front door just kind of freezes. She just stands there and it's like, I'm not even sure where to put this information. I don't know how to process through it. It's just this kind of paralysis. And from there, it usually goes into denial. Again, back to that scene. No, 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 it's not her. You've got the wrong house. You've got the wrong parents. She's upstairs. She's asleep. She's safe in her bed. She goes tearing on up the stairs, right? And then from there, you get the anger stage because his mom recognizes daughter's not in the bed. She starts to tear apart the bed and tears apart the sheets and then tears apart the mattress and starts to throw things across and then crumples onto the floor, right? You um, have a bargaining stage, which is, it's, um, we don't see this in as much in, in, in TV stuff, but it's, you know, uh, I'll, just, I'll just be better, I'll just do something, um, just kind of the bargaining stage. Um, the depression stage, this usually comes when, it, when the reality of the situation sinks in and it cannot be denied anymore my God, my daughter is dead. And how do I breathe? And how do I move? And how do I get up in the morning? You go to the testing stage. From depression, you go to, okay, how am I going to move through this? What am I going to try? How am I just even going to live here? I'm going to try, try doing this. This doesn't work. No, I'm going to try coming over here. This doesn't work. Um, again, you're trying to figure out a new way to live. And you don't have any experience in that new environment. And so you have to kind of try and fail and try and fail and try and fail. Until finally, you find something that works. And you can get up every morning. And you stop listening for your daughter to come down from her bedroom. On kind of a minor scale, um, shortly after I was married, my wife and I got a dog named Caesar. And when you get your first pet as a married couple, especially only six months after you get married, it doesn't really sink in that you've kind of made a long-term investment. This dog lasted 16 years. He was a long-lived dog, and he was a good dog. Caesar was a great dog. Black Lab, Chow Mix, mongrel, pound dog, not a mean bone in his body, and never a sick day in his life. We got lucky with this one. But about nine months ago, um, his time ended, and so we had someone come, and they, you know, kindly put him down, and 
our family just wept and was sad over this. But what I found myself is um, the adjustment period afterwards because he always slept next to my side of the bed and I always knew when I got up in the middle of the night you had to take a big step out of bed so you don't step on the dog. <laughs> and for two weeks afterwards I kept taking that big step because it was normal. And every time I did it, it's like, oh, he's not there. And pretty soon that step got a little bit shorter and a little bit shorter and a little bit shorter. Pets are important. He was part of our life. He was our first kid. We learned how to parent on this dog. <laughs> he was important. Um, never realized how much he swept up after us. After he died, we had to buy another broom because he just always cleaned up the crumbs. And, and now we just got to keep sweeping, okay? Um, that adjustment on how I don't have to take him for a walk. I don't have to take a big step anymore. I don't have to get up early and let him out in the morning. Um, that adjustment period and that acceptance stage finally fits in. And the conflicting emotions around, I'm glad he's not hurting anymore and I really wish he was here. And you know, the, the statement that I always say to him out of pure admiration is, you know, dumb dog. Because whenever, whenever I go looking for him, even now, almost a year later, and he's not there, dumb dog. Because I just miss him so much. Kubler-Ross wrote a book called um, uh, Psychology of Grief and Death, or Death and Dying, something like that. She was, um, before you get distracted by that, um, she, she went where no one had gone before and she sat with people on their deathbeds and asked them what it was like and walked through dozens if not hundreds of deaths with people. And she's the one who came up with most of these stages because she saw them in some form or another. But what she did say is um, the stages were never meant to help tuck messy emotions into neat packages. They are responses to loss um, that many people have but there's not a typical response to loss as there's no typical loss. Our grieving is as individual as our lives. We're messy people and we handle it differently. Grief is a roller coaster, not a series of stages. We keep going back and round and up and down and fast and slow. C.S. Lewis says, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. <clears throat> it's heavy. There are some things that can hinder the grieving process. I want you to know about them. Because again, ladies and gentlemen, the bad news is I don't think that we can avoid this. Some of you might have already experienced deep loss in your lives. Some of you might not. When you do, I want you to have permission to move through it in a way that will provide change for the better. I don't want you to get stuck or lost in that process. We can't avoid it. Things that hinder the grieving process. 
not staying in the hospital bed. Remember the metaphor about the runner a couple weeks ago, training for the marathon, gets hit by the bus, is now stuck in the bed. This huge loss and grief over all this work she had put, put into running this marathon is now gone. And so now she's stuck in this bed. If she does not stay in the bed and say, this is now my life, I am now having to learn how to walk again from a marathon runner to learning how to walk again is a huge shift of your life. If she fights against that and does not stay in the bed, do you think that will end up hurting her or helping her? It will constantly aggravate those fractures, those internal injuries, and she will never ever have the um, opportunity to heal. Shortly after my wife and I moved into our new home, um, our, our home is on the corner of uh, two streets. And the street up here, just down the road here, there's a pretty sharp corner. And um, we realized shortly after we moved in there that people take that corner pretty fast. Now it's way down there, we're not directly on that corner. But what we learned is as people take that corner, they start to overcorrect and they start to lose it. And as they go down the street, they lose control. So I think it was the week we moved into our house, which is always good news. We hear this at two in the morning. Um, we hear this tires screeching and then we hear the crunch, tire screeching, crunch, tire screeching, crunch three times. And we're going, holy cow. So we jump up, we run outside, and there is a, you know, early 2000s um, Mitsubishi Eclipse red that is going down the road like this, bouncing off the curbs, off the curbs, off the curbs, goes down the road a little bit, turns around, drives back, turns around one more time, drives all the way down the road, and then makes a left and disappears. And there's all sorts of noise. There's all sorts of just, you know, everyone, all the neighbors are out watching, trying to see what happened. And um, in the morning, I get up and I go out to see what was the damage. And in the street, right where we were, um, where I was looking, I find that. Does anyone know what that is? <laughs> that is a brake rotor off of the front end of this Mitsubishi. Now, for those who know cars, that's hard to bust. Those are, those are pretty solid. But that's sitting right in the middle of the road. I'm going, wow, that guy hit hard. I'm not even sure how his car is still rolling after, you know, the whole, the whole suspension had been just destroyed, the whole front end. So that's laying by my house. And I said, well, I know this guy bounced off here and then he drove down there. I'm curious what other parts are laying around. <laughs> I walk down the street and lo and behold, I find its brother right here. So I have, I've got the, I've got the complete set here. There it is. Brake rotor, 2000 Mitsubishi. That's a mess. We are given brakes, ladies and gentlemen, to slow us down, to help us navigate the corners safely. And if we don't slow down, we end up causing damage that is much more expensive and much harder to repair. Use your brakes. Slow down. When you are hurt or injured or grieving, it is okay to take time. It's important because we don't want that to be your life.
It's a mess. Stay in the hospital bed. Get better. Bearing or pushing through the pain when you just kind of man up and try to push through it, it will always, always cause more damage. There's a little girl um, living in the Midwest um, who has a very rare disease where her body does not register pain. It's a very rare genetic disease. And at the age of 10 or 11, she's already missing one eye, most of her teeth, most of her fingers have been broken, um, and she's been hospitalized over and over and over again because pain, hurt, doesn't register with her. And so she does not know when she's damaging her body. When she comes in from recess at school, she has to take 20 minutes with the nurse every day after every recess so the nurse can check over every inch of her body to make sure she doesn't have anything dislocated or that she's bleeding out or that she's wounded in some way. Now most people say, I'd love to live a life of no pain. But pain is that very nice gift that is temporary discomfort that prevents long-term damage. I'm going to say that again. Pain is temporary discomfort that prevents long-term damage. It's the signal that says, hey dummy, your hand is over the hot stove. If you don't move it, it's going to be damaged permanently and you will not, you will not have the use of your hand anymore. So it registers pain, we pull our hand away. When we avoid pain or when we deny or when we don't listen to it, we tend to cause more damage than help. My 22-year-old Honda that I'm driving around right now has this amazing little thing called a check engine light. It's an amazing piece of technology because when it comes on, I pull this little flap down under the passenger's eye floorboard, and that's the little CPU there, <laughs> and you count the little blinking lights, and then you look it up on the internet, and how many blinking lights that it tells you tells you what's wrong with your car. So, black, blinks four times. Okay, I got a bad EGR valve, I go to the store, I spend 30 bucks, I put a new EGR valve in, takes me half an hour and 30 bucks, and my car keeps running efficiently over and over and over, and just keeps going and going and going and going and going. Now, there are some people that that check engine light just annoys them. It's like, this, this is bugging me. So they <laughs> take a pair of um, wire cutters and reach up under the dash and they, Cut the wires to that light. No more problem. It doesn't bother them anymore, right? <laughs> but how long does their car run? <laughs> Not the wisest um, um, strategy for keeping your car in, in tip-top maintenance. We have warning signs, often called pain. Honor it. Listen to it. Uh, keeping your feelings and thoughts inside your head instead of talking about them with understanding people. Operative word, understanding people. Again, when you can connect with someone, when you can sit in that painful situation with those people, they provide comfort. We are built for relationship. We are built for community. And when we miss out on that, we miss out on a chance to heal thoroughly. Something else that will kind of hinder the grieving process, thinking you're always going to feel as you do in the first weeks. When you 
can't see beyond the blinding pain, which again is pretty understandable. When you can't see beyond that, um, sometimes you make decisions in those moments that don't work out real well for you long, long term. You have to know that we have this amazing gift called healing, again, that God provides for us. The grieving process is that healing process. And so if you move through it, know that you will feel differently. In fact, it's almost impossible to stay in that, in those intense feelings. You ever try that? You just try to be so mad all the time for six weeks. You just, it just loses its, its power. It just loses its gusto at some point because it's like, all right. That's that, that's that adaptation. That's that learning process. It's becoming different. You can fight it or you can just recognize that it's happening. Believing that your religious faith can lessen the impact of your loss. This might be news to some, but Christians are people too. The grieving process is not for believers or non-believers. It is for the human condition. And we can find comfort in our faith, but it does not lessen the pain or the impact of that grief. Does that make sense? One second, we'll get to that. Religious faith cannot grant us immunity from loss. Lots of believers lose things that are important to them as well. Religious faith cannot keep us or give us back our dead loved ones or our dead relationships. It just doesn't work that way. Religious faith cannot provide a shortcut through grief. In fact, I would argue that our Christian faith is a pretty good tool to help comfort us through that, but it does not prevent us from going through that. When we have, when we've tapped into the ultimate source of truth and comfort, it tends to work out better for us but we still need comfort. We still hurt. We still have that loss. And turning to and trusting in him can make that process much, much um, navigable. I think I made up a word. Hans, you had a question? Yeah. So are you using healthy and Am I using healthy synonymously with holy? Um, I'm not sure I understand the question. I understand the words that you just said, but I'm not sure the context. Well, I think I understand that there's this, you can under, you, you, uh, this process of grief has been observed by lots of people in different ways. Uh, as Christians, you know, we are human, but at each stage, we have access to more than just religious ideas. We actually have access to a person who can reframe Correct. each stage. Correct. So for the Christian versus anybody else, religious faith, what do we, how does our grief process look any different, if at all? Uh, going back to my car metaphor, when you have relationship with the guy who built the car, he might know how to heal or repair the car better. Um, our creator knows us well. And when we have personal relationship with that creator, um, and we can trust in that relationship, he tends to be able to get down to the root of the issue when he t 
tends to be able to get down to the, the stuff that hurts. Um, and I think probably for, provide a very thorough healing um, in ways that might not be available for others. Now that's not to say non-believers can't move through the healing process really, really well. I think that they can. I think God grants us all the ability, whether we're believers or not, um, he gives us all the same tools to move through that. Um, but I think that, again, uh, having relationship with our Creator gives us um, just one more resource um, that tends to be pretty good. Questions at all through this before we move on to how to help others through the grieving process? Everyone doing okay? Is this making sense? All right. Then let's talk about how to help others move through the grieving process. Someone who's approaching you. This is very important. Um, again, within my practice, uh, I have found a lot of benefit in creating care teams. When a client of mine is in crisis and they need extra support in their life, um, Oftentimes we will take people that they feel are trustworthy and close to them and we'll surround them uh, with some, uh, surround them with these people who are, who know their story a little bit more intimately than the rest of the population. And I walk alongside that care team to help teach them how to hold that person's heart, how to not um, do some of the things that we're going to see in here uh, so that it can provide uh, better healing for the person that they are taking care of. So how to help others. Number one, very, very important. Please write this down and memorize it. Don't try to fix anything. There aren't always answers to the hard questions. This is probably the number one go-to thing that people try to do to make people feel better. And it does not work. It just doesn't. Oftentimes, there's just things that can't be fixed. That's why we're talking about the grieving process. Um, don't try to take away or minimize the pain. Um, here are some, uh, there was a book, and I didn't pick it up, and I'm still kicking myself because I never did. There was a woman who lost her son, I believe it was. Um, he was seven or eight years old to an accident. And she started gathering all of the things people would say to her to try to make her feel better. Um, these are some of the things that kind of come out of it. You need to just snap out of it. It wasn't meant to be. You must be strong. She lived a good life or he lived a good life. You must move on. God will never give you more than you can handle. I understand. Actually, sometimes people don't understand. They just, they've never been to it and they can't understand. Be thankful you have other kids. Can you imagine that? Can you just, that's, that was one of them. It's over with. Let's not deal with it. Get a hold of yourself. Keep a stiff upper lip. Pull yourself together. Be strong for the kids. Don't let yourself be seen as human. Get back on the horse again. It was God's will. So therefore it shouldn't hurt. You can always have other kids. You're young. Maybe God is trying to teach you a lesson. <laughs> Others have it worse than you. Huh. What did you do wrong? You're being punished. 
It is just nature's way of dealing with a problem. It's amazing and offensive, isn't it? <laughs> Yet the things that we say to try it, because we just don't know what to do, we just don't, uh, there's this thing, there's this painful, gross, uncomfortable weight in the room, and people just start rambling, and really bad things come out of their mouth. So if you don't know what to say, rule is? Good, don't say it. Please don't say it. Stop asking why and ask, what will I do now? When someone's in that grief process, trying to figure out why they got hurt, how it happened, um, and trying to examine it to get more information about something does not help the grieving process. Instead, the question of what will I do now is moving into that acceptance place. And again, depending upon where they're at in that grief process, this question might not be appropriate at that time, but it is now saying, this is just how life is. This is the painful reality you now sit in. What will, what will you do now? What will I do now? Yeah. I'd be curious to know what people said that was helpful. Yeah. I can answer that. Again, my best friend, his name's Bill, and he is wise beyond his years, and he doesn't even know it. He's the one who helped me work through some of my inconveniencing stuff. I got fired from a job once. I was supposed to be fired. I wasn't a very good person, very good employee here. I got fired. Being fired stinks. It hurts. And I really, 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 really wanted that job, and I just it wasn't a good fit. So I called Bill up. Bill got fired. And he says, tell me about it. And so I tell him the story, tell him how it happened, tell him how I got the news, tell him how I was feeling. And at the end of it, and I will never forget his words, he says, Paul, just survive. He didn't say feel better. He didn't say you'll get over it. There's, you know, there's always tomorrow, silver lining, clouds. And he just didn't do that. He said, survive just breathe and that was so therapeutic to me because it's like I have permission to just not be good at the moment and survival was about all I could carry on at that moment I wasn't thriving I wasn't on my a game by any means I was mad and hurt and disappointed and frustrated and all of that and so he comes alongside and says just survive Other phrases, I hurt for you. And I'm just going to sit nearby. Sit in silence. Watch. Be willing to sit in the pain with them. Be nearby. It's not complex. Um, is this where it is? I think maybe so. Oh, some things that you can say. I'm so sorry to hear about your loss. I can't imagine what you're going through. 
it must be unbearable. Instead of saying, I understand, sometimes we can't understand. But it must be unbearable. Sit down and tell me about it. That was Bill's response to me. I don't know what to say, but I'll be glad to listen. How are you really feeling? That's for the people who come in with the smiles on their faces. Those are the people who are trying to crack jokes and make wise two days after something big. And you know <laughs> that ain't how I, anyone would really be feeling after something like that. And if you have the emotional equity built up in the relationship, you can go up to them and you can say, listen, how are you really doing? Because I ain't buying it. And again, if it's the appropriate situation, and if you look at them in just the right way, they can't hold it. They want to be seen. They want to be known oftentimes. Is it fair to do that somebody if they like, need their defenses at that time? Absolutely. Very, very good question. People need to keep themselves safe, absolutely. And so you don't want to, again, intrude into somewhere that they're not ready to go. That's why I said you've got to have a pretty high level of emotional equity. You've got to be able to tap on some of that. Um, you typically don't do that with people you don't know real well. Um, and you don't do it in places where they have to hold it together. So they're back at work or there's something, some reason that they have to make important decisions and you, you don't want them kind of decompensating and, and, and falling apart. Cracking them open at that time is unkind. Um, let people in that moment keep their protective armor up, absolutely. It's the situations where they're that way all the time <laughs> and they aren't ever letting themselves move through that process because they're always trying to keep that stiff upper lip. Um, what can I do to help? Practical question like that. Anything I can do to help? I'll even put one more, it's not on here. Um, that actually puts some pressure on people to make decisions and when they are in really hard places they oftentimes can't make decisions. Um, so if you come up to them and say, how would it be if I were to do this? Now it's just a yes or no kind of thing they have to answer. They don't have to come up with a list of here's what I need kind of thing. Um, so if you can offer suggestions, hey, would it be helpful if I take the kids? Would it be helpful if I bring a meal? Would it be helpful if I, you know, do your midterms or whatever it's going to take? Um, <laughs> You know, don't tell anybody this, but my wife did half my homework in college. It would just saved my bacon because I was working and everything else. So she got half the degree. Um, <laughs> coming up with, with purposeful suggestions on, on here, I'm going to try to do this to help. Would this, be, would this be helpful? That's a nice way to move through it. Be willing to take up the slack in day-to-day -day living. Um, Remember I told you that there are no negative emotions. There's always an appropriate time for every emotion. At the, at, in the midst of a deep loss, that would be a very appropriate time to see things like depression, anger, um, hopelessness. Those things might be very appropriate, which means when they are unable to get out of bed because their heart their chest literally is aching from the loss. Pick up the slack, do what you can, and don't have a lot of expectations around someone like that. And again, this isn't around just the loss of a, of a person. 
Divorce is painful. Accidents are painful. Financial crisis is painful. Some of those things. Don't only focus on the loss. It is okay to laugh and talk about other things in life. Again, that's a timing issue, but as you move through this, it's okay. Um, I have a friend who recently has gone through a divorce and there were days when he just says, I gotta put it on the shelf and I just gotta turn off my brain. And so he'd watch movies or go do something because he just couldn't sit in it anymore. And he didn't bury it, he wasn't stuffing it. It was healthy and good and appropriate to just say, I, I, got to, I can't think about it, I gotta take a break from it, I'm gonna distract myself with other things. And so he would go do those things. Um, it's okay to do that. It's okay to still make jokes sometimes and make them laugh. It's okay, and here's another thing, by the way. It's okay for you to be happy in the midst of that. Hurt for them, but because their world's falling apart doesn't necessarily mean that your world has to fall apart. In fact, it will benefit them a lot more if you can remain strong and let's say interdependent with them because if they're in a crisis, their world's melting down and they see that your world's melting down as well, they might have that inclination to, well, now I gotta take care of them as well and myself. And it actually puts more burden and weight on them. So remain strong within yourself. Recognize that this is what they're going through and you can hurt with them, but don't let yourself get ensnared into that. Is that kind of clear? Is that making sense? When you are, when you're so wrapped up in kind of their life, that's called enmeshment and uh, another big word? Codependency. Codependency, exactly. Kind of a favorite word. Um, how to help yourself through the grief, grieving process. Any questions about helping someone else before we move on? Wow, we are cranking. Last week we were way behind and we're just doing good this time. Um, like physical injury, there's a natural rhythm and timing to healing. I might have thrown this out already, but the um, healing process for a death or a loss is around 18 months to two years. That's what it just takes for us, for our hearts to start to heal. Divorce has the same numbers. Loss of a job, there's a time there's uh, a rhythm to that uh, being healed. Just like a broken bone heals around six weeks, our hearts, our souls, our minds take time to heal. Know that you will survive. When we forget that, when we think that our world has now come to an end, it's hard to move on. Remind yourself that you will survive. And survive there as opposed to thrive. When you're in the midst of crisis, grieving, you don't thrive. You don't thrive. Which means, please postpone major decisions whenever possible. In the midst of a loss like that, usually, if at all possible, not the best time to embark on major life changes like jobs and marriages and locations and finances and things like that. Go into survival mode. Just hunker down and get through it. 
Now again, depending upon what the loss is, some of those decisions might need to be made. That's when you pull smart people around you who might be a little bit more objective. They might be a little bit more understanding and can provide good counsel for you. Um, but if you don't have to, don't make any major decisions at that time. The term grief work shows that grief is something you must work at actively if you are to resolve it in a healthy fashion. It demands much more than merely passively experiencing your reaction to loss. You must actively do things and undertake specific courses of thought and action to integrate and resolve your grief. Work and work hard. Make choices. This movie right here, for those who haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. P.S. I love you. How many have seen it? How many have not seen it? Oh, there's your homework for the week. I'm sure it is. They always are. Um, all I'm going to tell you is it's um, a very good movie that shows someone working through that process. Um, and it's you know, fairly well done, I think. Not a Christian movie. Just throw that out there, just so you all know. But um, well done. Well done. It's on the uh, my therapeutic movie list. So <laughs> talk it out. Be seen. Be known. Put other people around you. Share what's going on. Do not hold it inside. Whether that is a professional, whether that is a person, a friend who knows you well, talk it out. Let it be seen. I think I've mentioned in here when you talk things out, you process it with different portions of your brain because you're now using the auditory and the verbal processing parts of your brain and it actually starts to sound differently. If you write it out, you got the last two senses as well. You got the motor skills and you have the visual stuff now going on. And you have much more of your brain processing through it and it actually sounds different. It, you just look at the situation differently. It's weird. Try it sometimes. Did you have a question? Yeah. And there seems to create a lot of conflict and anger that back to that list that you said, like get over this. Yeah. So would your advice be to honor that person's grieving and transfer talking it out with healthy, probably not your family? Yeah. And it, let that go versus if honor. if the person you want to talk to doesn't have the capacity or the patience or the resilience themselves to be able to hear it out, then you're not going to be getting back what you need. So, so it's okay to say, I know you want to talk it out. I want to let you talk it out. But right now, I can't hold that. That's an okay boundary to put up. I would suggest talking it out with this person over here or this person over there. Please talk it out. But at the moment, I, just, I can't hold that. Uh, that's a good way of protecting yourself. Again, if you're one of the family members who's also sitting in the grief in your way, you don't have to talk it out you know, with that particular person. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
it's okay to care for yourself. <clears throat> if you have the energy, if you have the resilience, if you have the fortitude to be able to sit with them in that, that's a great gift to be able to give them. And some people talk it out in different ways at different lengths. Some people need to really talk it out and really talk it out and really talk it out and other people need to talk it out once. So you got to find that good fit of both the talker and the listener. If you don't have that good match, then it will become painful. It is hard. Right. It is individual. This is the reason people have wakes. This is people have the reason people have funerals and eulogies because it's a way to talk out. It's a way to process verbally their feelings and thoughts about that person where you gather and you just remember them and remember what's going to be lost. It's really a nice moment to move through some of that. But yeah, if you're sharing the same loss with that person, at that moment, because it is your loss as well, you probably aren't the most objective person to help them through their loss. You need to find your support, they need to find their support. And if that's mutual, that's great, but it's not required. Good question. Yeah. Um, I've got a question about what that, what grief might look like, <clears throat> I guess just in a marriage. Like if you, for whatever reason, can't talk it out with your partner, then... What do you do? Yeah, what do you do and how do you not um, like avoid like potential like resentment or even bitterness of like... Yeah. It's a very like vulnerable spot. You know what I mean? I do. It requires two people to communicate. Unfortunately, there's kind of three different um, paradigms or parameters when it comes to marriages or relationships. If you have two people who don't want to work it out, and I've seen those people in my office, um, marriage tends not to get real healthy. If you have one person who's fully committed to working it out and the other person's bags are packed and by the door, that marriage does not typically get resolved. It requires both people to have the resilience and the endurance to be messy and to both talk and listen. And when we are wounded, when we're in the midst of that hurt, um, the listening part can be kind of hard. Um, but it requires both people to be able to talk that out. And if they aren't, if, if one person is not in that place, then you need to call it like you see it. I have an elephant in my room, in my office. It's a puzzle, it's a wooden puzzle, sits in my, sits in my window sill. Um, because there's always an elephant in the room. And if you start acknowledging it and talking about it, you tend to be able to move through these issues a little bit faster. So if it is, listen, we are not communicating real well here. It doesn't feel like I'm being listened to or it doesn't feel like I'm being able to listen to you in the way that you need. We might need to have a third person in here to kind of mediate for us to kind of work through this. And if both parties are agreeable to that, you oftentimes can get a lot of good traction um, and some resolution, and sometimes you can't. I got a question. 
And that right there is a hard spot because when you're the person who wants to work it out and talk it out and the other person doesn't, that's back to the one of the two really, really painful emotions, which is helplessness. It's just like, I can't make this person do it. And that's a perfect, perfect place for the grieving process because you really, 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 really want this to work out. And sometimes we don't get what we want. So, yeah. When you said it's a comforting thing to know that you will survive whatever it is that you're grieving, what if someone comes to you and they've just gotten divorced and it was like out of the blue and they're severely injured and their husband has moved on to someone else and tells them all at once, this happened to me today where someone told me that and I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what to tell you because it was so rough. And she said, I don't know what to do with the loneliness now. She's not outgoing, she's in her mid-40s, and now she's going through a divorce. What do you, doesn't have a job, he worked, you know, yeah. had all the, Yeah. what do you, you know? I mean, you can easily say pray and trust in God, which is kind of what I said, but yeah. it's almost like she was waiting for me to say that anyways, because yeah. that's the cliche answer. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice to be different? <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice to say, I'm not sure how you're surviving right now. You must be in so much pain and fear and hurt, and I can't even fathom it because, you know, I don't know if you've been through that or not, but I've never experienced that, and I am heartbroken for you. It doesn't try to stop the pain. Do you hear that? It's an acknowledgement of the pain. And it is, not only is it an acknowledgement, but it's now the calling out that elephant that's in the room. And I'm not afraid to call it out. And actually, I'll be willing to sit nearby. Let's be those kind of believers. Let's be that kind of person who just holds people's hearts well and doesn't try to fix it. Again, all the cliches, all the really bad answers are the trying to either fix the problem or stop the pain. We can't. We're not supposed to. It's supposed to hurt. It's valuable and it's precious and it was important. That's why it hurts. So instead of trying to stop it, let's just acknowledge it and say, I don't know how, but keep breathing. It's that line from Sleepless in Seattle where he's on the phone at the beginning of the movie and he's describing this loss of his wife and he says, I get up every morning and I breathe in and out and I move through my day. That's what we got to do sometimes in the midst of that early pain, that blinding, confusing, angry, resentful loss. We just get up and we breathe in and out. Yeah. What happens with people who um, are going through horrible grief and decide, and they do what you said not to do, which is make a major life decision, like to end a marriage yeah. in the middle of horrible grief. What happens with that? Then you have two losses that you have to work through. 
And again, it's, it's not uncommon. When someone gets injured, they push through it and they re-injure themselves. And so now their healing is a little bit longer, but we still heal. And maybe the consequences are a little bit deeper, um, <clears throat> but we have the capacity to change and grow. And again, that, right now, even as I'm answering that question, I feel like the answer is a little anemic because I, 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 I'm not sure there's an easy answer to it. <clears throat> I had a divorce final, and then two days later, my mother died. I just felt like it was really not a good week for me. <laughs> no, it was, it was like, it was, it felt like the grief was so deep, yeah. and so, and it, so overlapping. Yeah. But this thing called time, I yeah. think, which is so beautifully put, that 18 months to two years is yeah. true when I go back and track it, but I was down I was down in the depths of a place that I've never been back to because yeah. you really don't get another mother yeah. you know or another yeah. you know first marriage like that yeah. so yeah that was really and in the, and if we actually put ourselves in that again we made that major decision in the when we probably didn't have the best resources available to us right. um, that's where we learn how to be okay with a mistake a failure we say what did we learn from it um, and how do we need to move through this and make it right? And then you adjust. But you don't expect that adjustment to be immediate or fast. You expect the consequences to be realistic. Um, and you surround yourself with really, really, really good people. Yeah. And when you do that, it takes a lot of the weight off. And again, when they're really good people and they love you a lot and there's a high level of trust, that they can start mocking you yeah. in the midst of that. Yeah, you're hurting really, really bad. You know, let's go buy a sports car. Kind of those kinds of comments, which that levity, you start to just normalize that mistake. It's a good question. Grant yourself forgiveness. Yeah, it is really common. The ex-husband totally regrets it. We both, you know, it's it's wild, but it's really common now. Yeah. At 40. Yeah. Yeah. You find other people with similar stories. Yeah. And so, you make a club, and then you have hats made, so everyone wears the same hat and T-shirts. <laughs> no shame. Like that was <clears throat> That was the first time I experienced shame. Like a, a creepy kind of like, yeah, how, how could this? We do lots of things to try to make our pain stop hurting. And sometimes they work well and sometimes they don't. Good questions. Good, good questions. Um, we were talking about talking it out. Um, Express the emotions, talking about that physiological reaction and that release that needs to happen as, you, as your body needs to process it. Do you ever know that feelings are physical? They are not mental. You ever think about that? When you're angry, the muscles tense, fear is that knot in your stomach or that tightness in your chest. Loss is that chest tightening, that, that, that heart hurting. 
In fact, they've um, done some really interesting studies around um, paraplegics. And they actually tend to experience less emotions because their body can't feel that. They, they've lost that connection. And so their world feels a little bit more gray. They just don't have the broad range of emotions anymore. Because when they get scared, where do you feel fear? <laughs> but, they, but they can't feel it anymore. Weird, huh? Um, so express the emotions. And again, talk about those tears and it's okay to do that. And we need to process through that. Be a mess for a while. Kind of real basic, but be messy and be messy well. You heard the new Amy, you heard the new Amy Grant song, by the way? Um, what is it? Something about, what? The hallelujah. The hallelujah one. More than a hallelujah or whatever. Download that one or whatever, because it's talking about this. What's the line in there? This beautiful mess? Something like that. Yeah, my stories tonight, without having a lot of detail, kind of fall flat, don't they? Shoot, I should play that song. Um, Amy Grant's latest one right now, she understands this beautiful mess that we are, and it takes more than a hallelujah. It takes, you know, connection and people. Yes. Oh, it's you? No, you can't. Go ahead, Ben. Some of these things, you know, be a mess for a while, especially at what level when, um, when someone's grieving, for instance, especially when there's kids involved, you know, where they don't have a choice, where your mess affects them. Yeah. Like Lars and the Real Girl type stuff. Yeah. You know, in that movie where the father's grieving and so his son, you know, pays the price and has to get through his own grieving process because yeah. the father was being such a mess that he didn't show any sort of Didn't get the kids what they need. Yeah. yeah. How do you, as someone walking with a family, or maybe that happens in your family, how do you process through that with them? Allow them to be a mess and allow them to grieve, but at the same time, yeah, work through some of the responsibility that comes with just being a human. That's the parenting class that needs to be taught on how to have realistic parenting. Um, healthy parents tend to be able to navigate through these healthy, or these, these painful situations in a healthier way. Um, I never received the parenting class that talks about how to handle grief. I just, I never had it. Um, and so knowing how to navigate that, we just were ignorant, dumb sometimes. Um, a great, great book resource um, is by Peter Levine, and it's called How to Trauma-Proof Your Children. Um, and it is the idea of helping parents understand the physiological and the mental process that a child goes through at, in the midst of a loss. And he's talking about divorce, he's talking about abuse, he's talking about medical procedures um, and kind of the consequences of those things and then how to help your kids kind of move through those things. Very, very good for those who are parents in the, in the room. Um, but Ben, I think the painful reality is when any adult who has children doesn't have an understanding of the grieving process, their mess just blinds them to their, to their kids' needs. And, and I don't like giving that answer, um, but having an understanding of what this looks like and what needs to be done, how to meet the primary needs of your children, um, sometimes isn't known by parents. Um, it's a hard, hard reality, and I don't have an easy answer for it. Yeah, I guess what I'm asking is from the outside, if you're oh. walking with somebody, oh. 
they're you want to let them have time to be a mess, but at the same time, recognizing if, that they're going to create more grief in their life. Got it. Then if life. you have this information or you understand the grieving process, then you get to tell them how to be healthy grieving parents. It's okay for those parents in the room here to make mistakes. I do it all the time with my kids. And you know what I get to teach them in the midst of that? Children, here's what it looks like to grant forgiveness because I need, now need to come to you and ask your forgiveness because I mistreated you. And you are modeling that because children don't naturally know how to do that. And so you get to teach them, I need to ask your forgiveness and here's how you move through that. In the midst of a deep grief and loss, you get to go alongside a parent who's grieving and say, you are hurting and you are hurting bad. Let's let you be a grieving parent with your kids and here's what would be an appropriate amount of grief. It's okay to say, I miss mom or I miss your brother. I miss the way that they did this. I saw their toy and it made me so sad. And when you can verbalize some of that, and if you can help someone, another parent, be able to articulate some of that, that would be appropriate because now all those things that are happening to you as a parent are happening to the other siblings or anyone else in the room as well. And so you allow them to be able to verbalize and vocalize their feelings. So if you're walking with a parent who's going through this, it's okay to say, hey, you need to be there for your kids. Try this. Now, it's important. Again, everything has a balance here. Kids need to know that their parents are still in control, that their parents are still have the capacity to care for them. And if the parent is totally decompensated, is, is not capable of even pulling themselves together, um, that's where you pick up the slack, like that other one, and you take care of the kids. And you can have those conversations. Oh, I really miss your brother, or I, I really miss your mom. And you can step into that place for them. Again, carefully, appropriately, all those things. Um, but it, it, is important. it is important for children to know that their parents are hurting, but not out of control, help, scared, helpless kind of thing. There's some really fascinating stuff around attachment and that kind of thing in some of those. Um, we live in a mortal, frail, imperfect world in which the world, word fair does not always apply. It is not fair. The losses that you experience are not right and fair many of the times. Yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that. Pull that one back. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even Caesar. This is a strategy a lot of people adopt. After they have been hurt deeply, they say, I'm never going to put myself out there again. I'm going to build these great big walls, and I'm never, ever, 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 ever going to allow myself to be close to anybody. It's a strategy, and it works really well, but it's also this prison that they build for themselves, and they can't get out very much. So you risk, anytime you love anything or anyone, you risk getting hurt. 
understanding the grieving process is, is pretty important. A couple resources for you. Ben already mentioned it. Has, who has not seen Lars? Lars and the Real Girl. When I teach this class, I actually would love to just put that movie in and watch it and then talk for three hours after it because it just is so packed with stuff. Um, primarily how other people help him go through this processing, this grieving process. Good, good stuff. Can I caveat with that? Watch the movie all the way through. And yeah. Sometimes you get into it and you're like, this is really strange. It's one of the most redemptive yep. films yep. that I've ever seen. Really, really good. Uh, again, I mentioned it. P.S. I love you. Really, really good. Um, there's a book called Tear Soup. For those who aren't familiar with it, I actually think the author is here in Portland somewhere, maybe? Um, Tear Soup. Fantastic story. A little metaphor, um, allegory kind of story of a woman who's gone through this loss and she's making this tear soup and everything that she's putting into it and how people come and try to help her and it doesn't work and all these things. Great book. Again, I wish I could read it to you. Uh, author Schweibert, Schweibert, S-C-H-W-E-I-B-E-R-T, Pat. Probably one of the best resources as well. Um, and I'll end on this other people who have hurt because they can bring a knowledge and an experience those are the people who tend not to say the stupid things when you're hurting find those people that would be a good care team to put together as a church to say here's here's the people that we know who have had painful stories and when someone else in our church is going through something bad we connect them up and they just sit and listen. That's a good care team. That's a really good care team. Questions about the grieving process? Any other comments or thoughts? Yeah, Jimmy. Can I throw something out real quick? Yeah. Four years ago on Halloween day, I was sitting on my front porch handing out candy when my phone rang and it was my father and he told me that my mother had suddenly passed away. I hadn't spoke to my mother I hadn't seen her since 1991. Mm -hmm. I'd spoke to her three times in 15 years. Mm -hmm. There was anger issues, mm -hmm. and she put a no funeral clause in her will. Mm -hmm. I didn't only not I did not only get to not say goodbye, or I'm sorry, mm -hmm. but yeah, I, I you know there's times if I start <clears throat> to think about her too much, I start bawling like a baby. Yep. I've woke up in the middle of the night from dream. It's like there's certain steps of the grieving process I've gone through, but there's other steps that I can't go through. I don't know what it looks like to go through. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You know, when somebody goes and there's anger and you don't get to say I'm sorry or goodbye. Yeah. How do you move through that process then? I don't know. I mean... Would it be okay if you ask that question again next week and we'll take a few extra minutes to, to sure. be able to address that? Because I think that would be a good question to have an answer to. Okay? okay? Um, it's a good question, Jimmy. Another question or comment I thought I saw? All right. Then to honor your time, how about we wrap it up and then 
come back next week if you want to um, partake in each other's lives in a little different way. Come with questions, and we'll see if we can answer them for each other, okay? Father in heaven, our hearts are known to you. The pain and the fear and the, the um, weight that we carry, you know intimately. Help us be able to release it and give it to you and move through that in appropriate and healthy and honest ways. Let us remember and experience your comfort and let us feel in a real and tangible way your love for us. Thank you that you've made us to heal so that we can be changed and new and redeemed. May our new lives bring you glory and honor. And in your name, amen.